a bit. Yes! Where's my party people? Maybe you have a, yeah, thank you. Um, sevens unite on the Enneagram. Um, maybe you still have a Christmas hangover, Preston. I don't know. Maybe you're still tired from New Year's. Who knows? But you made it. Kids, I want to celebrate you for a second. You are the best. Can we give a hand for our kids? We love you, but we want you to leave. So in the back, there's, um, there's Mr. Miller. Go back with him. Say hello. Give him a high five. Can we clap one more time for our VIPs, our kids? They're so cute and adorable and fun. Oh, my gosh. Christmas is over. You made it. You did it. Good job. I can't believe it. You probably still have some PTSD, though. I bet you do. I bet some of you that stayed up late till... Are kids gone for the most part? Yeah, I bet those of you that stayed up late putting your partner's toys together for them... I bet you're tired still. I bet you're still a little frustrated and stressed out. I remember this one Christmas. Howdy wanted nothing more than a minion from his parents. He wanted a giant minion, but he didn't want like a plushy minion. He wanted like a minion he could play with. And so Devin and I found a three-foot minion made out of fake Legos, not real Legos, that we had to put together for him to be able to open on Christmas Day. And of course, me being a procrastinator, I waited till Christmas Eve to put it together. And it took, you ready for this? Nine hours. <laughs> to make this three-foot minion for a four-year-old that destroyed it in 10 minutes. Pieces were just scattered everywhere. And tedious tasks like this, let's be honest, they can be really frustrating. And they can be very, very time-consuming. And they can be very heartbreaking, especially if you're missing a piece. And simultaneously, when you see that it's done, when you see it all put together the way it was supposed to be, it can be so rewarding. It can be so rewarding when you figure out how to finally reach your goal. This is why when dads cut the lawn or pull the weeds in the garden, they sit back and look at their work after they're done for 15 minutes and they're like, mm-hmm, yep, it looks good. Like, what are they looking at? But it's because there's so much satisfaction when things get put in order. Apple headphones are now wireless. Kids will never know the satisfaction of pulling out your headphones out of the wire drawer and having to untangle them for 20 minutes before you can listen to the new Tay Swifty album. Like, there is something so satisfying when you finally get them in order. You remember that? You know what I'm talking about? Where you finally lay them in, in order and they're nice and untangled and you can put them in and listen to your music. But have you ever considered in your own personal life, Jeremy, have you ever considered how it feels to have life be tangled up or out of sorts or not put together or perhaps once put together but all of a sudden pieces scattered about throughout the floor? Have you ever experienced late nights of anxiety knowing that the knots 
They're supposed to be untwisted and untangled, but they're not. Have you ever looked at the world and seen how it is sorted with the haves and the have-nots, the us and the inevitable those people, and felt a sense of dread knowing that this unkept mess isn't the way that it was supposed to be. It's as if the pieces are missing or that something isn't quite right in our world. Here's what I think. My hunch is, is because it's we're designed for order. We're designed for order, for unity, and to be in harmony with God, to be in harmony with ourselves, to, How many in here just want to be at peace with the interior places of your soul? How many nights do you stay awake knowing that I shouldn't feel this way, and yet you do? We're supposed to be at peace and harmony with God, with ourselves. And check this out. Not only are we at peace within ourselves, but that leads us to be at peace with our wider community as well. That is the way that the pieces are supposed to be put together. But more often than not, it's like a three-foot minion that a toddler has gotten a hold of, and the pieces are scattered about. Some pieces are scattered very far from the place they're supposed to be. Here's what I think. I believe this is true because we are designed to be reconciled and we're designed to be reconcilers. You're designed to be reconciled. And you're also designed to be reconcilers. Some of you have a new tattoo in your future You need to get that tattooed to your arm or something. In other words, we, I have a place if you need a tattoo. In other words, we are invited by God to untangle the mess of our inner world and our outer world. To see simultaneously our own needs to be the ones to offer the reconciliation necessary for wholeness in the world around us, to untie the knots, to maintain the lawn, to pull the weeds, so to speak, of xenophobia, racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, American and Christian exceptionalism, American and Christian nationalism, these weeds in order for reconciliation to take place in our community must be rooted out. We're not going to be at peace. Our three-foot minion is not going to be whole. Our Apple headphones are going to be a tangled-up ball, a mess. And there's no goodness that can come from that. You can't listen to 1989 by Taylor Swift when it's like that. (laughs) But here's the deal. Reconciliation isn't just a religious concept, is it? It's a universal need. Yeah, just turn on the television and you can see. 
And, but here's also the reality. Since it is a universal need, you don't have to be a Christian to participate in this reconciliation work. So good news, whether you're here today and you consider yourself a Christian or whether you're on the margins of your faith or whether you've been deeply wounded by this faith, guess what? You participate and need to participate in this reconciliation work because it is important for our world. And so no matter where you are in your faith journey today, I plead to you, this is for you too. Because people are being excluded, literally from experiencing the intrinsic divine, design, I'm sorry, intrinsic divine mandate of equality and wholeness. These folks are what we often deem as the other, the other. The other can be defined as anyone that is different from us, who will never be given the opportunity to be like us, and who in, for all intents and purposes, is inferior to us. And there are four ways that our world deals with the other. And when I say world, I'm including all of us. My bet is, if you took an inventory of your life, you have someone or some group of people that you have otherized. This happens sometimes subconsciously, and we don't even realize it. Maybe the other for you are people with disability. Maybe the other for you are people of color, and when you see a group of young black teens on the corner, you roll up the window and you lock the door. Maybe the other in your life is that uncle or that person in your family. We all have others. And the world typically deals with the other in four ways. The first way is elimination. Think genocide or imprisonment. The other is assimilation. You must adopt our worldview and our culture to be acceptable. You've got to talk like us, and you need to dress like us. Does this sound familiar? The other way is domination, a system or institution creating a caste system, so to speak. And sometimes this caste system can be very, very covert. It's very hard to see the caste system, but the more you unpeel the onion, you start to realize that there is definitely some privilege at play and that there are some with and there are some without. And then the final way is abandonment. Abandonment, uh, think about Gilpin Court for a second. It's a, a food desert, an ecological uh, uh, maltreatment, area. It is uh, an area that um, is oftentimes funneled to Title I schools and given the least opportunities for education. Abandonment. So I'm going to run through this again. Uh, elimination, assimilation, domination, and abandonment. These four exclusionary tactics, they can oftentimes be found on a spectrum. And it's not quite as extreme as my examples, but sometimes it is. And they often occur in our day-to-day -day lives, and we don't even realize it. 
And you can see how quickly we're led to a tangled up mess when these realities kind of weave into, even subconsciously, our thoughts and our practices, and we begin to engage in them, and we don't even realize it. This makes the writings about Jesus so powerful because all these realities are at play during Jesus' life. Epiphany is when we examine the life of Jesus and realize that Jesus' birth isn't just significant for our life or for a specific group of people that call themselves Christians. This is a significant moment of reconciliation for all people. Epiphany is a time to reflect on Jesus' way so that we can correct the places where our pieces are scattered on the floor and slowly but surely we can put them back together again and make some sense of this world and bring about some unity and bring about some hopeful light. That's what epiphany is. This light that we replicate through the life of Jesus. And there's so much hope that can be found in Common Table. It has to start here. We are the ones that must be reconciled with Jesus and with one another so that our wider community can learn and be at peace with itself. So that we can be the ones to advocate. No, we stand up and demand equality. That the pieces that are furthest away are brought into the fold. And slowly but surely, people with courage help to put the pieces back together. The system right. The way it was supposed to be designed to be. Are you with me? Our scripture reading today enters into this very kind of world of elimination, assimilation, domination, and abandonment. It starts with a man with paralysis. Now, the rendering of this text, it can be kind of shocking. I I don't love how it was translated. There's a whole lot of ableism that is suggested in it. The other thing I want to note about this text is um, they made a cognitive decision to translate a word that often gets translated in other uh, uh, renditions of translations as the son of man. They chose to translate it as the human one. Well, I think son of man really captures the essence of the text. So for those of you that are like, oh my gosh, he's talking about the text and how maybe there's some different translational translation variants here, don't worry. God doesn't change who God is just because of translations in our text. Are you with me? So it's okay. We as Christians can wrestle with the text. It's okay. I'm here to tell you that Jesus is still Jesus and that God still loves you. But sometimes there are textual variants. (laughs) And that's okay. It's cool. It's gravy. We party on it. So it starts with this man uh, that's with paralysis, and we don't know why. And this man is carried on a stretcher by his four friends, and they approach a house, probably Jesus' house, where he was teaching. However, there was a barrier to Jesus. There was an undercurrent of forced assimilation in a world of elimination, in a world of abandonment. This man and his friends didn't have room made for them. 
and during this teaching moment with Jesus. And so they go around the back of the house and they start making room for themselves. They start figuring it out. They start digging into the roof. If the world doesn't make room for reconciliation with Jesus and one another, we're going to force it. And so they start digging into the roof of this house. Isn't it funny how tedious reconciliation can be? Isn't it funny how much courage reconciliation takes? Isn't it funny how challenging it is to call institutions that we love, oftentimes that we love, out? Call them to be better, to do better, to tell the truth of the pain that has been inflicted upon us. Sometimes it takes tremendous courage to be a reconciler. Sometimes it takes thinking outside of the box and start digging into roofs to make reconciliation a reality. But we must be a courageous church, the kind of church that looks reconciliation in the face and says, we're not afraid to do what is right for our community and for our world. Sharon, uh, Sharon, uh, Lisa Sharon Harper says this, reconciliation is the courageous choice to see the humanity in those we've been taught to fear. Who have you been taught to fear? Who have you been taught to fear? By the very systems that are hellbent on elimination, assimilation, domination, and abandonment. Is it the Asian American community? Is it the LGBTQ community? Who have you been taught to fear? I want to give some context before we move forward. The working assumption within religious institutions of first century Israel was that the reason a person was with a disability was because of the sin that they had committed or the sins of former generations. In fact, this kind of physical disability prevented them from being included even in temple worship or being with God at any kind of capacity. And you can read about this in Leviticus 21, 17 through 20. And as a result, people with physical disabilities were oftentimes kept outside, literally often begging for money as means of support. They were and are today one of the others. So in the scripture reading, Jesus would set the record straight that this man was just as much a part of the divine inclusion as anyone. In fact, that reconciliation demands it. For Jesus, this isn't a commentary on the man's ability. It's a commentary on what the audience and the Pharisees sees as wrong physically. They see the physical disability as something that needed to be fixed, corrected. But Jesus sees something deeper. Jesus is making a commentary on reconciliation here. In Jesus' eyes, this man's sins have already been forgiven. Already been forgiven. Jesus is showing the path to reconciliation. In our story, Jesus says, your sins are are forgiven. And when the teachers of the law questioned him in their heart, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, what's easier to say? 
Is it easier for me to say, get up, pick up your mat and walk? Or is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven? Isn't it true that people will oppose this kind of radical reconciliation? Isn't it true that people are going to grumble when the shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one? Well, that's not the way it's supposed to be. What about the rest of us? Your sins have already been forgiven. People are going to grumble when we have to change our worship to be more accessible. People are going to grumble when that song that they love is taken out of our worship catalog because it says something harmful to a marginalized group of people. People are going to grumble. People are going to grumble when when things have to change in, in order for reconciliation to take place because change is hard. Change requires something. Change is tedious. It's courageous. It takes prophetic words from the pulpit to be spoken that oftentimes sting us at our core because we realize that it is us that needs to be reconciled, not just with Jesus, but with our neighbors as well. Why? Because reconciliation is costly. Then Jesus says something really interesting in verse 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is a really interesting line. Now, the Son of Man is a reference to Daniel 7, 13 through 14. In that text, the Son of Man is an eschatological figure. Eschatology is the study of end times. This is an end times character that will come onto the scene and will judge the world with righteousness, will judge the Israelites' enemies with righteousness and bring about um, uh, bloodshed of the enemies. This is the Son of Man. And look what Jesus is doing here. It's really fascinating. Yes, the Son of Man brings righteousness, but how does the Son of Man, Jesus talking about himself, bring about this righteousness? Is it through violence and bloodshed? No. It's through reconciliation, inclusion, and the forgiveness of sins. How cool is that? And guess what? The invitation is for each and every one of us to be the sons, daughters, and siblings of man. We are the ones that are invited to make pathways when there are no pathways of accessibility. We are the ones to figure out a way to bring ourselves and other people to the foot of Christ so that they may be reconciled together. We are the ones that reconcile with one another our differences through conflict, healthy conflict, so that the world may see how to do conflict healthily. We are the bright light of transformation through the gifts of the Holy Spirit and through Jesus Christ's power that we have been invited to participate 
in this invitation of reconciliation. So what must we do? First, we must be reconciled to Jesus ourselves. This is a question of personal piety. Do you know the Jesus of forgiveness and do you embody this same kind of grace? Then because we know the hope, because we know that our friends have an opportunity of reconciliation, we bring others, our siblings, to this. Anyone who has been otherized, anyone who their the pieces of the minion have been scattered far from their purpose, we gather them back up and we start piecing it back together. New Testament scholar David Garland says this, and I want to invite the band back up. If Jesus is the model of our ministry of reconciliation, if we see the Jesus that announces the forgiveness of sins and the chance of reconciliation with God, which is in its wake brings healing, the church needs to proclaim in its words and deeds this offer of forgiveness, which can cleanse all sin. There are many whose souls are stranded by the snarled undergrowth of oppressive guilt, the kind of guilt that comes from assimilation, elimination, domination, and abandonment. We are the hope of the world. The followers of Jesus must emulate Jesus' own commitment to the city of Israel by our love for our own communities, by our hope for reconciliation and the places that God is sending us. And sometimes those places are hard. Sometimes those places are, are um, scary. But those places are places that deserve the hope of Jesus' bright light. Drew and I have been praying, um, praying about the direction we feel like God is inviting our community in over the next year. Last year, it was to go from next door to neighbor, and we worked really hard at redefining our mission and our ministry here in the Randolph neighborhood. We, we collaborated locally with local nonprofits and figured out ways that we could not just go from being that next door church, but being that neighbor church here in the Randolph neighborhood. Drew and I have been praying over the past year about the direction that we wanted to take ourselves as leaders, but also the direction that we feel like God is inviting our leadership to take. And we want to invite you into this new movement that God is inviting us into over the next year. We believe that God is calling our church, Common Table, to be reconciled so that we can be reconcilers of our city reconciled so that we collectively can be reconcilers of our city. And we're starting this from the top down. We are starting with Drew and I and our church council, our lay leaders, reading and figuring out how to do conflict well with one another. How to be a church that does conflict, but does conflict well with one another so that we can learn how to be reconciled with one another and reconcilers in our world. And that's my invitation to you. Will you be people of reconcilers in our city so that our city might know the good, good news of the God that forgives us all? In the name of the three in one, Oh, wait, I forgot something. Because it's right in our mission statement, people. Cultivating ministers, you, of reconciliation around the table of Jesus Christ. Let's say that together. Cultivating ministers, not the you part. 
of reconciliation around the table of Jesus Christ. Be healed.